it's your host, Scott. On this episode of Floor 9, we're bringing you something very special. An interview with the Pulitzer Prize winning reporter for covering racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine and the creator of the landmark 1619 project, Nicole Hannah-Jones. This conversation was conducted as part of UM's Global Impact Day, a day where UMers around the world close their laptops and give back to the communities around them. Without further ado, I'm going to pass the mic over to Anthony Hello, the Global Chair for UM Better World, and Deidre Smalls-Landau, the Chief Marketing Officer and EVP of Global Culture here at UM, for a conversation on racial injustice with the legendary Nicole Hannah-Jones. To kick us off and to introduce our very special guest, let me first welcome today's lead moderator, Deidre Smalls-Landau. Hello, everyone. Um, thank you again. As Anthony shared, we couldn't be couldn't be prouder of our UMers and everything that they've done today to bring the idea of um, volunteerism to a virtual level. And so, um, you know, I'm completely grateful for that. I am uh, Deidre Smalls-Landau, the U.S. CMO and the EVP of Global Culture. And what I do at UM is, all of you know, I'm responsible for the agency's internal and external branding and really focusing on how culture shows up internally in terms of our workforce and uh, as well as our product. So it is, it is I am beyond um, sort of ecstatic to be on this panel as a moderator um, talking to the amazing and legendary uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones um, She on this impact day. Um, as you all may know, um, during our during our time of education, uh, after the George Floyd murder, we spent a lot of time educating or working to educating the UN population. And the 1619 podcast was one of the ones that I recommended that all of uh, our employees watch, uh, listen, and understand. Um, so uh, Nicole is the creator of that. Um, she covers racial injustice for the New York Times Magazine has, and has spent years chronicling the way of official policy has created and maintains racial segregation in housing and schools. Her deeply personal reports on the Black experience in America off, offers a compelling case for greater equity. And on top of her creation of this, she's also a Pulitzer Prize winner. So. We are very happy to have you. Welcome, Nicole Hannah-Jones, to the closing of our Impact Day. Uh, over the course of our conversation, I'm going to ask several uh, questions about a lot of the topics you covered in 1619, as I see this time as an opportunity to really, as Anthony said, listen, learn, um, and I'll add act on that, because I think, you know, listening and learning is great. We need to act. And we're at a point where we need to ensure that everyone who, who purports to be an ally, who wants to be an ally, acts. Uh, so that is the intent and the questions and sort of the education. So I'm going to kick this off with um, my first question. Um, why, uh, in your estimation as a contributor to American culture and your role in rebuilding what I feel 1690 1619 did the historical narrative around Black contributions to the American economy. Economy. Why is six, the 1619 project such a critical piece of American history now? 
<laughs> so you want me to brag on my own work? Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I think that the 1619 Project matters because the 1619 Project helps us explain the country that we're in right now. Uh, we are all aware, of course, of racial disparities, of the inequality in America, but we're so poorly educated on the history of racism, slavery, of uh, Jim Crow, that we don't really know how we got to these inequalities. And when you see, you know, people all over the country marching in the streets to uh, affirm should be a given principle, which is that Black Lives Matter, how do you put that into context? And so what I think the 1619 Project does is uh, it gives us the lexicon to understand the inequality that we see to explain why uh, in every indicator of well-being, Black people are on the bottom of those indicators of well-being, really no matter their social class. It helps explain why a uh, police officer should kneel on a man's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while being recorded and feel that he wasn't going to face a consequence. So. That to me, I think is, is, is what the 1619 contributes is that it explains that across all of these areas of uh, American life, we've been told that slavery was marginal, that slavery is an asterisk to history. But actually, if you truly want to understand our politics, our culture, uh, our highway system, why we consume so much sugar, if you want to understand policing, all of these things about American life, uh, you have to start from the beginning and the foundation and really understand that history. So that's that's what I think that uh, this project contributes to the moment. And you mentioned, um, you know, the sort of understanding the lexicon, which, you know, up until you revealed it in the way that you did, one of the things that you said in 1619 was um, you were very purposeful with your words and you said, the conditions, when you talked about the conditions of entrapment of black people, you use the verb enslaved versus calling them slave. Tell me, tell me more about that, because I thought that was really profound when I, like, that is true. Yes, yeah, so we, we know that language is powerful. I write for a living. I understand that words and the words we use and choose um, can shape how we think about something and our ability to empathize with something. And to me, uh, ever since I was young, the word slave always bothered me. It always seemed like such a dehumanizing term. It, it seemed like uh, a term that did exactly what it was designed to do, to make people less than, to take away people's humanity. Um, no one is a slave. A slave is who you are. But uh, to call someone an enslaved person speaks to a condition. It speaks to something that happened to you, but not your essence as a human being. Uh, and so I you know, created a style guide for the 1619 Project and made it very clear, like there were certain words that would never appear. So the only time you see the word slave in the project is if it's in a, a direct quote from a historical text. Uh, we called people who owned other human beings enslavers, not slave owners, right? It's, it's not this benign thing. Uh, we called plantations forced labor camps because that's what they were. When you think about a plantation, you think about these beautiful uh, Grecian columns and this genteel lifestyle. What you're not thinking about is that all of this is created by people who are forced through torture and violence and fear 
to labor against their will for free. You wouldn't call um, a concentration camp a plantation, but we've used that language to describe forced labor camps and slave labor camps in the United States. And that's all part of the erasure of how brutal the system was. And it's all part of why we, we don't actually have a true understanding of what slavery was and impact. So language is, is critical in both reclaiming the humanity of our ancestors, but also in properly describing what was one of the most barbaric institutions in the history of the world. Given this revelation, given sort of how you're painting, you've painted the picture. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, a, a big part of guilt amongst people who feel, well, that wasn't something that I was a part of. What sort of backlash have you experienced in the creation of 1619, sort of during the creation and then after the creation of 1619? So I think it's important to say my project or my work is not about making white people feel guilty for an institution that they did not take part in. you have nothing to feel guilty about. Uh, I mean, maybe you have things to feel guilty about, but those are things you're doing right now. I'm not asking people to feel you know, generational guilt. But what I am saying is you have to acknowledge that this happened and that you are a beneficiary of this past and these systems. And acknowledging is not the same thing as guilt. So you don't have to have owned another human being. You don't have to personally have benefited from slavery, but you are in a society that was built on slavery and that has given you a certain advantages um, that are linked to slavery. And the other thing I think is important is to understand that we want in America uh, to claim things about our past that we didn't have anything to do with if we think those things are positive and glorify us. So the same person who says slavery was a long time ago, I didn't have anything to do with that. My ancestors didn't own slaves. will also say they want to claim the Declaration of Independence. Even though they weren't alive back then, they didn't sign the Declaration. Your ancestors didn't sign the Declaration. Your ancestors didn't write the Constitution. You didn't sign the Constitution, but you want that protection. You want to be able to claim the glory of the nation, but you don't want to claim its sins. I'm arguing that we have to take on all of those things. If you claim Uh, July 4th, 1776 in the Declaration, then you have to claim 1619 and the fact that we engaged in chattel slavery for 150 years prior to becoming uh, a nation. Um, So what I'm really arguing is that we are a country and we all inherit the legacy of our country for good or for ill. And it's time to stop trying to cover that up because we're uncomfortable with it. Uh, We don't want to deal with it because we we have been raised, we are born into this belief that we are an exceptional country. And the way that we are taught history is all about this narrative of exceptionalism that downplays the dark sides of our history and plays up the light sides of our history. And I'm just saying we have to acknowledge the truth of our history. And some of it is going to be very hurtful and some of it's going to be very grand. But you can't look at uh, the, the experiences of Black Americans today Uh, And if you truly want to understand them and be dismissive of the hypocrisy uh, of our nation. Um, You mentioned um, Independence Day, and I want to talk about that for a minute. Um, This year, because of the reckoning, the awakening, whatever we want to call it, um, you know, we 
we meaning the country as well as black people, because I've had conversations with my aunt about Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. I'm like, auntie, you know, what happened? What, why didn't we ever celebrate Juneteenth? She's like, they didn't tell us about that. And my aunt is 70. No, she's 79. She talks to me. She told me about how she used to pick cotton with my mother. And so I'm always just like, huh, they didn't tell you. And so it's actually, it's so interesting because I was like this, this permission, this permission and or this introduction of it was sort of devoid, sort of avoided. Um, and so I have a question for you about Juneteenth and especially this idea. I was reading the other day about Frederick, Frederick Douglass's speech that he gave on July 5th, which I thought I'd never heard about it before. And I was listening to something and someone said he talked about the speech that he gave. What to the slave is the 4th of July? And he said, your high independence only reveals the immeasurable distance between us. The blessing in which you this day rejoice are not enjoyed in common. The 4th of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice, but I must mourn. That's, that gives me chills when I just, when I read those words because it's so powerful. So today, in this day, what does independence mean for Black America? Because we can celebrate Juneteenth, but what does independence mean for Black America today? You mean Independence Day? Mm -hmm. I think that uh, Independence Day is um, a complicated day for Black Americans. One, we, we are American. We fought in the Revolutionary War. So, of course, uh, it is a day to celebrate the birth of our nation. Um, at the same time, we understand that July 4th, 1776, uh, we as a people were in bondage. We were one fifth of the population of the 13 colonies, and yet we had no freedom. We would know no freedom. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, the drafter of the Declaration, owned nearly 200 human beings who were our ancestors as he was writing the Declaration, including his own family members, including his wife's uh, half-black brother, whom he owned into slavery as well, who was there with him in the room in Philadelphia as he wrote the words of the Declaration. So it's a complicated, it, it really speaks to the duality of the Black experience that W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about so eloquently, that we are always of two halves. We are American and yet not fully American. Uh, it's the only country we've ever known generationally, and yet at the same time, we've always had to prove our citizenship. And that is what Frederick Douglass, when he gives that speech, is talking about. He was asked to give a speech to commemorate the founding of a country based on the ideals of unalienable rights and universal freedom. Um, most of us probably know the opening words of the Declaration without even having to read it on paper, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, endowed by the Creator with inalienable rights. But when those words were written, 20% of the population didn't have those rights. And when Frederick Douglass was asked to give that speech, which he refused to give on the 4th of July, uh, that's why the speech was given on the 5th of July. And it was given on the 5th of July because um, Black people marched in New York on the 5th of July in um, 1827 to commemorate the end of slavery in New York. One, when you think about that and think about how we've been taught that slavery was only practiced in the South, uh, slavery was practiced in all 13 of the colonies, including New York, which didn't abolish slavery until four decades before the Civil War. And it was practiced in New Jersey until 1865. So just some little uh, 
blow your mind trivia to not think that slavery was just in the South. But he refused to give the speech on the 4th of July for that reason, because he he was almost um, offended. If you read the rest of the speech, he asked, did you ask me to give this speech to mock me? Because how dare you ask me to give a speech to commemorate the 4th of July and this America's freedom when 4 million black people are currently enslaved. Uh, so we have always, as black people, understood this duality. And when we celebrate the 4th of July, we are celebrating a time to be with our families and to commemorate. We are not celebrating the independence of a country who enslaved us for another 100 years after our founding and only ended slavery because of the deadliest war in American history. Now, when we think about Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth really was a regional holiday. There's a reason most of us never knew about that growing up because it was only celebrated really in that part of Texas and it didn't start to gain more kind of national recognition amongst black Americans until maybe a decade or so ago. What I think though is more critical is we don't have an Emancipation Day in America at all. So whether it be Juneteenth or whether it be January 1st, which is the day that the Emancipation Proclamation was issued, um, we don't acknowledge emancipation. And most countries that had chattel slavery in the Americas have an Emancipation Day. The reason we don't commemorate the day when we truly become uh, closer to being a country of our ideals is we are ashamed, right? You seek to hide and cover up that for which you are ashamed. And if we acknowledge Emancipation Day, we have to acknowledge how foundational slavery was to America, and we have not wanted to do that. I'm sticking with history for a moment. At the very um, basic level, what is the historical significance of the year 1619? Oh, great question. For those of you who may not have listened to the podcast or read the uh, project, uh, 1619 is the year, August of 1619, is actually the, the month in the year that the first enslaved Africans were sold into the colony of Virginia. So that is where we mark the beginning of uh, African slavery in what will become the United States. And I think what's uh, so critical about that date is the English landed at Jamestown in 1607. So when you consider that it only takes 12 years uh, before we have introduced the institution of African slavery, then that tells you how foundational this institution is to America. Only 12 years uh, before we have introduced that, and that's 150 years before we ever even decide to declare our independence from Britain and become a country. So I don't think you can understand America without understanding the significance of that date. Um, the ship that arrived with these Africans is called the White Lion. But I would imagine uh, almost no one who is watching this today had ever heard of the ship, the White Lion. Now, the Mayflower landed a year later in 1620, and yet every American child has heard of the Mayflower. That again talks about that erasure because the White Lion in 1619 is arguably far more important to the American story than the Mayflower. But the Mayflower is a story of freedom and democracy seeking people. Uh, and that's the narrative we want to tell ourselves. So we all learn that. And the story of the White Lion is a story of slavery and of denial of rights and liberties. And so we don't actually um, 
want to tell that story and so we haven't and that's really why I ultimately created the 1619 project was uh, last year was the 400th anniversary of that landing and I knew most Americans had never heard of the date 1619 and like so much of the story of black people in this country and of slavery in particular it was going to pass with little to no acknowledgement and I really wanted to force um, a reckoning and to force us to take stock of, of what that moment has meant for the country that we ultimately have become. In 1619, you talked about how your father flying, uh, flew the American flag from his home and you were ashamed for several years when you were a kid um, because you just didn't quite understand his, I guess, his, his, his action as a result of sort of where what the sort of being black was at that time and still is today what's interesting is that all these national symbols are being questioned right so things that were historically thought of as monuments of progression and or or liberation or freedom have been pulled down confederate flags images on packaging that sort of communicate like a certain lifestyle or a certain image of a black person so this is sort of this tide of things that are happening that I think is quite interesting and sort of the the anger associated with the structural, what I'm calling structural activism towards this symbolic hypocrisy. Um, so when people deal in that way, I'm trying to reconcile like what the outcome of something like this will be. So our liberation is clearly going to require more than taking down flags and taking down monuments, but um, symbols clearly matter. There's a reason these monuments were built in the first place. There's a reason that um, Mississippi had the Confederate flag on its flag until earlier this, uh, this month when it was voted finally to be taken off. These symbols are powerful and these symbols were put in place to signify the racial caste system and signal to black people their place in America, which was to be on the bottom, which was to be subjugated. So absolutely, uh, the removal of these symbols matter. And, and, and I'll put it this way. So we know that uh, the Confederacy was a, a traitorous army that wanted to break off from the United States, that took up arms against the United States and took up those arms so that they could maintain the enslavement of black people. Why would we ever have thought it was okay to put up monuments to them? You would not go to uh, Japan, or excuse me, Hawaii and see a monument to Japan at Pearl Harbor because Japan fought against the United States and killed Americans uh, in war. You would never see a monument to Japan. You wouldn't go to the Alamo and see a monument to General Santa Ana uh, because General Santa Ana fought against Americans and killed Americans. You wouldn't go to uh, Wall Street and see a monument to Osama bin Laden, right? Like, I, I don't understand why this has been so difficult for people to grasp that we have created monuments to people who fought against America in order to uh, maintain slavery and have largely just told black people to deal with it. Now, you look at many of these cities, Richmond, Virginia, where that uh, gargantuan uh, Robert E. Lee monument is finally coming down. This is a majority black city where black people pay taxes to sustain monuments to people who fought to keep their ancestors enslaved. 
And then we want to be perplexed about why these monuments need to come down, uh, why these symbols need to come down. Only in a country where uh, white supremacy is more important than ideas of liberty would you have people fighting to maintain monuments to people who fought against the United States and lost the war, which you can't really tell in the South who lost the war by the monuments that have built. Now question, how many monuments to enslaved people have you seen in any of these cities? They don't exist. The people who literally built the infrastructure of those cities. Uh, so the monuments matter because the monuments tell us what we glorify, what we value, uh, what's important, and what history we need to remember, and what history we need to forget, and how we should remember that history. Now, when you get to a monument like George Washington, it's clearly less cut and dry. Yes, George Washington enslaved hundreds of human beings and forced them through torture uh, to make him wealthy. But he also was the founder of this nation and our first president. So when you build a monument to George Washington, you're not just building a monument to someone who fought for slavery. You're building a monument to someone who was the first president of our country. When you build a monument to Robert E. Lee, the only reason that you memorialize him is because he fought uh, in the Confederate Army uh, to maintain slavery. So I, I think that um, it, it's frustrating that it's taken this long. And then when people say, well, it's not right to damage property. They should have just gone through the, the normal processes. One, it tells me you actually haven't really cared about this issue because in many of these cities, voters voted to remove the monuments and then the heavily Republican white legislatures overturned those local ordinances and said you cannot remove the monuments. So people did try the democratic way and it didn't work. So they did the other democratic way, which was they tore it down themselves. And you didn't see those same people arguing when people tore down the monument of Saddam Hussein in Iraq, in Baghdad, after the fall of Iraq, people weren't upset that that monument came down. Uh, they didn't call that looting and destruction of property. So there's a lot of hypocrisy around this. Um, you know, who gets mad that a mammy gets removed off of a box of pancakes? Doesn't make the pancakes taste any different that there's not a black mammy on the pancakes, okay? Um, so. <laughs> Clearly the symbols matter, but, but what I'm much more concerned about is that we've seen all of these very quick symbolic changes to distract us from the necessary changes that have to be made. Uh, will we actually see the structural changes? We haven't seen a police reform bill get passed yet uh, in Congress, right? We aren't seeing an economic justice bill being argued in Congress. So yes, the symbols matter, uh, but the symbols will, will, they may help liberate us mentally in some ways, but they would not liberate us as, as people. That work is going to be much, much harder. That was a long answer. Sorry. I have a lot, I have a lot of feelings about that. <laughs> no, I'm sure you do. As I, as I watched it and I sort of watching it and not not understanding why people are so upset. Like, why are you so upset? This is a part of history. It's not a good part of history. And we have to sort of move for, forward in a progressive way. I agree. Um, so along the lines of sort of the progress that needs to be made, you know, there's a lot of, I think this this is the first time um, there was a poll, a Monmouth poll that showed that the percentage of Americans who believe the movement, the Black Lives Matter movement has helped racial issues. It's up 16 points from 2016. 
with the, with 26% of respondents saying Black Lives Matter is having a positive impact on race. Um, the protesters who showed up in 2014 for Eric Gardner are more, who showed up for Eric, Eric Gardner in 2014 are more diverse and younger than they've ever been in, in 2020. So there's a general feeling that this time is different, again, because of all these things coming down and, and all the packages changing and Juneteenth and the holidays, um, making a holiday, making the holiday official. Um, but my question is sort of, and I was on a, a, talking to someone the other day, for progress to happen, obviously we need legislation and in corporate America, we need sort of to think about policies and things of that nature. Um, but there's a lot of conversation about allies. And someone said to me on the, on the phone the other day, I don't want an ally, I want an advocate. And she said, because allies seem too passive, I want an advocate. So I thought that was interesting that she made this distinction between perhaps the passiveness of an ally, and I'm not saying allies are passive, but how does it move from, Anthony, to your point earlier, from listen, learn to act? And so what would you say is the best um, terminology or phrase to use for someone, not the affected population, with respect to moving progress forward? So I don't care about the terminology. And I personally uh, find much of the terminology fairly useless, right? Are you an advocate? Are you an activist? Are you a co-conspirator? I don't care. Like, what are you actually doing? Whatever you want to call yourself, call yourself. But like, what what work is being done? And what I what what I have found is people want something very easy. They want, you know, they say, well, what can I do to fix this? And then you lay out what needs to be done, and they're like, oh no, I can't do that. That's that's too much. Um, so I think we need to get away from worrying about the proper language and to really worrying about the actions and what are the important actions, important actions, for instance, in a corporate structure, who are you hiring, period? And what jobs are you hiring them into, period? And once you hire people, what are your rates of retention? Because what we often find is there is this frenzied hurry to hire some folks and you hire them into lower positions and then you lose, you're losing just as many people of color as you're hiring in or just as many particularly black people as you're hiring in. Um, what are like, you know, what are the ways that you are supporting true structural change? Like economic reforms specifically targeted to black Americans, AKA reparations, right? What, what are you actually supporting policies of school integration in your communities? Are you actually supporting policies of housing integration in your communities? We want these little tiny asks that don't require a fundamental restructuring of a vastly unequal society. Um, and I, I'm glad you didn't ask me this, so I'm gonna stop you before you do or before anyone who asked the question in the uh, little chat box asks, which is people are like, well, what should I be doing? Um, frankly, <laughs> I, over the years, I've become very tired of that question because no one consulted Black people on how to build segregation. No one asked us, how do I redline this neighborhood? How do I deny loans and capital to this neighborhood? How do I create these segregated schools? And now there's this so-called helplessness about how to undo the structures that white Americans either created or acquiesced to. And now they want us to tell them how to fix the things that we didn't create. If you didn't consult on us then, don't consult us now. Like 
we know what to do, right? We know when uh, we say we believe in equality and then we're in New York, right? And as soon as the chancellor started talking about integrating these schools, all those white allies suddenly weren't allying anymore, right? That That is the thing uh, that we're really talking about is it can't be these superficial things. It's easy to march in a protest and God bless the people who do it. We need protests because protest is what forces politicians to pay attention, but that's the easy thing. The hard thing is in your own life, are you willing to share those resources? Are you willing to share your neighborhood? Are you willing to share your kids' schools? Are you willing to share the um, levels of authority in the place that you work, not with tokens, but with actual substantial numbers of, pe of people? And the answer almost always is no. So I'm like, you know, I'm just tired of, 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 the, con of the conversation only ever reaching the level of a conversation. Folks are always like, we need to talk about race. Black folks have been talking about race since 1619, okay? We don't, <laughs> the, the conversation, there are thousands of books to read, articles, movies, any education you want is to be had out there. But what, when do we start actually taking the action? And now I'll get off my soapbox. How much time we got left? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's great. I mean, you 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 just you pushed into another territory, which is always a hot topic and um, one of a lot of contention. The idea of reparations yeah. it is it sends everyone into a tailspin based on everything you just said. Why should I have to pay for it? I didn't create it. You, so to talk to me about your because I know you're a huge proponent of reparations, and it might come in. And I think the way people think about reparations, I think might just, it might feel like it's one dimensional versus sort of everything you're saying in terms of this line through of systemic change and or opportunity and access. So one, I always ask people before I start talking about reparations to like really just take a, a second and pause and ask themselves why they do have such this a visceral rejection to the concept of it. Like, like, what is it that makes so many people, and I was just looking at polling on this uh, the other day, that Democrats, who you know we consider to be the progressive party, uh, only 30% of white Democrats are in favor of reparations. So that tells you a lot about um, the, the way that we have reacted to that. And I want people to just take some time and reflect on why. Um, and then I will say this. I do think a lot of the response to reparations is because we have been taught this history so poorly. People really don't understand uh, that slavery was not a system of racism. Slavery was a system of economic exploitation. And what does that mean if for 250 years you were unable to own property, to own land, to make a will, to earn a dollar for your labor and everything that you earned Every day you worked in your life, that money went to someone who owned you and not yourself. 250 years. How long have we been a country? Do the math. Now, then the way that we're taught history is we're taught about slavery. We're taught it was, you know, kind of bad, but no different than being Irish, which I hear every day on Twitter. Um, and then we blink and it's 1963 and we're at King's March on Washington and King marches and has a dream. And then everything is equal. There's a hundred years between the end of slavery 
and King marching in 1963. And that hundred years was a period of racial apartheid where it was legal to discriminate against black people in every aspect of the law and society and where black people were still not allowed to earn the same money as white Americans, to go to the same schools, to uh, advance into the same jobs and were discriminated in housing, uh, the largest generation generator of wealth in this country. So we've been a country since uh, 1776 and we spent the first 250 years of that time legally discriminating against black Americans. If you're not taught that history, then you don't really understand that we're not just talking about reparations for slavery. We're talking about reparations for a hundred years of racial apartheid that followed, which by the way, I don't know how old you are, but I imagine you're around my age. Our parents were born into that, right? So my father was born into a uh, Mississippi in a place where black people could not vote, where black people could not use the public library, where black people could not go to the public hospital, where black people could not go to uh, schools reserved for white Americans. This is not ancient history. I'm part of the first generation of black people in the history of the United States who was born with full rights of citizenship. Me, I'm 44 years old. So when we don't understand that long history and legacy and the 350 years of plundering that black communities have faced, and the fact that when we passed civil rights laws in the 60s, we didn't repair the damage. We didn't say, okay, now I'm going to give you, you know, uh, recompense for all the home loans that we denied you and all the land that we stole from you. There wasn't ever a repayment. We just said, okay, from now on, you can't discriminate uh, in the law anymore. Uh, so I think that that is why we have this visceral reaction. But the data is clear. There's nothing that black Americans can do on our own to close a racial wealth gap that is 350 years in the making. So when you see the data, the, the typical black household has $1 of wealth for every $100 of wealth that a white family has. If you're a black family with children in your household, you have one cent of wealth for every $1 of wealth that white Americans have, one cent on the dollar. Um, black people with a college degree have less wealth than white people with a high school degree. Black people who are married have less wealth than a single white mom, right? Like everything that we're told that we have to do cannot undo a 350 year head start. And we want to uh, make up for that gap with everything but wealth. But slavery was a system to extract wealth from black bodies. Jim Crow was a system, it was an economic, a system of economic exploitation to extract wealth from black bodies. And so the only way to deal with a wealth gap created through economic exploitation is with a wealth transfer to black Americans. Um, if people are more interested in this, the, the cover story I wrote for the magazine a couple of weeks ago called What is Old literally lays out every, it lays out the history and every argument that we have um, against reparations. And I know I'm, I'm talking a lot, but you know, I guess that's why I'm here. That's why you're here. <laughs> but when you look at, we understand the concept of reparations in the law, the concept of restitution. If our loved one goes to the hospital right now and that hospital does something that it wasn't supposed to do and our loved one dies, we understand that we, uh, the way that we make up for it in this society is with financial restitution. 
you can sue, you get a lawsuit, and that hospital has to pay. It won't bring your loved one back. It will never make you whole. But this is the way we understand that we can write try to address the wrong and the harm in this country. This country has paid reparations to other groups. It has paid reparations to some Native American groups. It has paid reparations to the Japanese. Um, and yet, when it comes to Black people, we have refused to pay a cent in reparations. And I think we really need to ask ourselves why that is. And the last thing I'll say on the issue of reparations is reparations are not paid by white people, which is what I hear all the time. Why should I have to pay you for something I didn't do? Reparations are paid by the federal government. The federal government sanctions slavery. It's in our constitution. Congress passed laws to sanction slavery. The federal government sanctioned uh, segregation and discrimination in the law. That same federal government has existed since 1776 until now, it is a societal debt. It is not about individual white people writing a check, though I always say, if anybody wants to write me one, I'll give you my Venmo after the talk. But reparations is a societal debt and it is paid by the society, not by individual white people. I wanted to ask you about a, a turn of phrase that, that stood out to me in 1619, which is, um, that you use the language protesting the violation of their rights. And often um, in you know discourse, we hear you know people are protesting for their rights. and And also you make the connection between the protesting for the violation of those rights and how that, as done by the black people in this country, has impacted all sorts of other cultural groups, including yes. people in the LGBTQ community like myself and immigrants and so on. can you can you weave that thread for us? Absolutely. So um, first, let's just begin. We're a country that is founded on the idea of, of universal and inalienable rights, even as we are a country founded on slavery, that Black people during the revolutionary period and all the way until now took those words in those founding documents to heart and used them rhetorically against the United States to say, you said we were founded on these ideals, and yet we are being denied the rights of citizenship that we should have as a birthright. And you see that language being deployed again and again in Black resistance struggles all the way till now. If you look at pictures of the marches happening now, look how often you see Black people wrapping themselves in the banner of the American flag. This is an outward uh, protest to say we are actually citizens of this country. We are taught this history so poorly, but after the end of slavery, we have this period called Reconstruction. And it's this brief period of time where uh, we experiment with multiracial democracy and we actually try to uh, become the country of our ideals. And it's during that time that Black people are pushing Congress uh, to pass what ultimately becomes the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. Now, Black people have always, because of our role, being on the bottom of society, have advocated for universal rights and meant it. We, you've never seen a moment in time where Black people have only fought for their own rights, but for the expansion of rights altogether, because when you're on the bottom, you realize that if you are fighting to deny other people rights when you are on the bottom, those your rights will too be denied, that your freedom is inextricably tied with the freedom of other marginalized people. Um, now, the 14th Amendment uh, is the first time that we get equal protection in the law and also birthright citizenship. So every person in this country who uh, came from immigrants 
you are a citizen because of black Americans at the end of slavery demanding to be recognized as citizens in their own country. And we are one of the few countries in the world that grants citizenship by birthright. Almost no other country does that. And that is the gift of uh, the formerly enslaved. The 15th Amendment uh, offers universal suffrage for men. Of course, women wouldn't get uh, the suffrage uh, until 1919, which is the anniversary year. And then that would be black, uh, white women because black women largely still couldn't vote. Um, but it was the 15th Amendment gets suffrage to all men, regardless of property and regardless of race. That is also because of slavery. So, or uh, formerly enslaved. So when I talk about black people uh, fighting the violation of their rights, when we look at the civil rights movement, the civil rights movement, which comes 100 years after slavery, was black people fighting to achieve the rights that they had already gained with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. So the 1964 Civil Rights Act says you can't discriminate against uh, people in public accommodations because of race. Well, that's what the 14th Amendment said. The uh, Voting Rights Act in 1965 says uh, you cannot deny black people the right to vote or anyone the right to vote because of their race. That's what the 15th Amendment said. So black people were having to fight 100 years later to vindicate the citizenship rights that they already had. Um, but what's critical about all of those laws in the 60s is they didn't just ban discrimination against black Americans. They banned discrimination against anyone because of their race, their nationality, their gender, ultimately their disability status. And now we are seeing the Supreme Court using those laws to also ban discrimination against people for their sexual orientation. Uh, it was a, a beautiful thing to see when the Supreme Court ruled that it is constitutional for gay people to marry. They used the 14th Amendment reconstruction uh, amendment that was pushed through uh, Congress because of the advocacy of the formerly enslaved. When a few weeks ago it said it is illegal, uh, unconstitutional to discriminate against uh, people seeking employment because of their sexual orientation. It was using uh, the 1964 Civil Rights Act that was passed because of the black resistance struggle. And the last point I'll make on that, which I talk a little bit about in my essay, is uh, every immigrant, nearly every immigrant in this country who is not white, who is not a white immigrant, is here because of the black resistance struggle. Because prior to 1965, our immigration system used a racist quota system that denied entry to most non-white immigrants in order to keep our country white. And so if you were an immigrant from South America, from Africa or Asia, you could not really get into the United States until 1965. Uh, the black resistance struggle uh, helped get the Immigration and Nationality Act passed, which ended our Im racist immigration quota system. And then we saw large numbers of black and brown people being able to immigrate to the United States. And because of the civil rights movement, they immigrated into a country where all legal discrimination in the law had been struck down. Um, so I wish more of us were taught this story because as we know, part of the Americanization process when you are an immigrant is to learn anti-blackness and to immediately, once you get here, thanks to the black resistance struggle, you were able to come here and thanks to the black resistance struggle, you were able to live in a country free of legal discrimination. And yet 
so often you are taught to distance yourself from black Americans, to look down upon black Americans and to say, why don't black Americans just work hard and they can become uh, successful like me? So maybe if we understood that history better, um, immigrants who are coming here from other places would not allow themselves to be used as tools of white supremacy. Oh my God, Nicole. <laughs> I mean, that was that was one of my questions and you answered it perfectly. And Anthony, you know, teased um, it up. It's just, it's just so mind blowing when I think about sort of that this movement and the rights and the liberation of black people are basically the gateway for every single and, and I don't think people realize that because if they did, to your point, they would be behind this 100% and they would understand that. So That's we right. have to close. My last question for you, first of all, congratulations again on your partnership with Oprah Winfrey and Lionsgate. Awesome. I'm so happy you must have been, your mind must have been blown just knowing that you're going to work with another legend. Tell us more about that. Sure. So I, I'm very excited and very scared about this partnership because I'm a writer and uh, TV and film are, are not what I do. And I, I'm very uh, conscious of my duty to protect the integrity of the work that we did. But uh, the partnership is really a, a development deal to develop an unlimited number of projects in TV, film. It could possibly uh, be on the stage, uh, could possibly be traveling exhibits, all built around the concept of the 1619 Project. And so um, there will likely be documentary series, there will likely be scripted, either television or film or both. And, and what's so critical about that is, you know, I come from just a regular working class family. And most of the, the people in my hometown are not going to read a uh, 40,000 word printed magazine on uh, the legacy of slavery. They just aren't, and it has nothing to do with their intellect or activism, but most Americans in general don't want to read a 10,000 word essay. Um, so what is beautiful about it is this collaboration allows us to introduce the ideas and the framework and the history of this project to such a wide uh, audience who otherwise probably would never be exposed to it. So I'm really excited uh, about the possibilities. I do, I do really feel uh, that this history is empowering and that if more of us understood this history and really the unparalleled role that Black Americans have played to perfecting our founding ideals, that a lot of this acceptance of inequality and a lot of the hatred that people feel um, would be harder to hold on to. But we're just taught so poorly this history and so poorly the role that Black Americans have played that it has allowed that to fester. And um, today is Ida B. Wells' birthday, and you guys probably know my spiritual grandmother. And she said the way to right wrongs is to shine the light of truth upon them. And that's what I hope that the 1619 Project is doing. Oops, wonderfully said. And I can't imagine the call that you, what happened in your household when, I hope, I'm hoping Oprah called you and said, hi, Nicole, and that Oprah voice. And you were like, oh, is this okay? <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, social activism and celebrities. We have a lot of celebrities. You know, Dave Chappelle did his, um, you know, his YouTube special. Dave Chappelle said, I don't need to speak. The streets are speaking. And so I'm just wondering in this role of social, of activism, 
um, the role that celebrities play and whether they play a role at all. I mean, they do and they don't. So what are, what's your perspective? I mean, celebrities have a tremendous megaphone and can reach such large numbers of people and, and in, in some ways give legitimacy to regular grassroots organizers. So I think celebrity, I mean, we all have a role to play, whether we are a celebrity or just a regular person on the street. But I think if you are a celebrity who is going to try to step into this arena, uh, you owe it to all of us to educate yourself first, because, of course, what we are seeing is a lot of celebrities who are stepping in and they clearly have not done the reading. So I'm going to need you to either do the reading first or just pass that megaphone or your platform on to someone who's an actual activist. But you look at someone like John Legend. Um, who uses his platform, I think, in an amazing way. He is highly educated on the issues. He is always in contact with activists on the issues. And his messaging um, is so right that, you, you, you know, he's a great example of a celebrity using the platform in a way that is beneficial. And then I'm not going to call anybody out right now, but we've clearly also seen examples of folks whose heart might be in the right place, but uh, they don't know enough and should probably pass the mic. But we all have a role to play. And just because you're a celebrity doesn't mean you've lost your humanity or, you know, your um, your ability to weigh in on these issues because we all should be weighing in. We just need to do the reading first. Thank you, Nicole. This was awesome. Um, I really enjoyed talking with you and I hope the audience did as well. And we will take this with us to not only listen, learn, but act. Last thing, call your congressman and tell them to support H.R. 40, which is the reparation study bill. That's a small act that you can do that won't cause you to give up anything. It's Nicole Hannah-Jones on behalf of everyone at UM who is blowing up my phone right now um, <laughs> with praise for this conversation. Thank you so much for being thank here. Thank you. UM, Lynn, thank you for allowing that to happen. Deidre, thank you for moderating. And thank you all of you for your volunteering today and for joining this panel. Happy Impact Day. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Wow. That was just incredible. Thank you to Anthony, Deidre, and Nicole Hannah-Jones for that excellent conversation. Uh, listeners, you can find in our show notes links to all of the different articles and content about the 1619 Project and uh, what Nicole Hannah-Jones has been working on. So definitely go check that out. And with that, that about wraps up this week's special edition episode. So thank you once again to Nicole Hannah-Jones for joining UM uh, and being a part of this credible conversation. To all of our listeners, we'll be back next week. Uh, so as always, feel free to reach out to us on social media, ask us any questions, uh, and let us know what you think. Uh, we'll talk soon. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.